Uh, we can turn back to Haggai chapter 2 and um, read again verses 5 to 9. A wee bit of chapter, verse 4. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. For thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more, in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth, and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations, so that the treasures of all nations shall come in, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. And the book of Haggai is, as we know, a very short book two chapters, and in the way it's divided. It's also a very short book in the period of time it covers, because the entire book covers a period of four months. And um, <clears throat> no doubt uh, the background to the book of Haggai is quite familiar to us. The people were uh, discouraged and they were discouraged for a variety of reasons some of them internal and some of them external some years before Haggai was um, sent to them uh, exiles had returned from Babylon and they had returned with great optimism and that optimism, for example, is found in Psalm 126. And such was the initial um, effect of their return uh, from that captivity. So miraculous was the way it happened that all the nations said about them, the Lord has done great things for them. It couldn't be hid. And the, they themselves, as that psalm indicates, also joined in the chorus. The Lord has done great things for us, whereof we are glad. But that didn't last. Whether or not they continue to sing Psalm 126. Who can say? But one thing is obvious. They didn't live it. Time became, the times became hard. And they were depressed because of it. Internally, 
Well, there were some people with long memories. Well, sometimes people with long memories are very dangerous. And the people who had long memories here remembered the previous temple. And they just said, we remember when we saw all these things that Solomon built. And it was so impressive. And they just said, we haven't got the resources to do that, to repeat it. And of course that's true. And sometimes people know a lot about the past and use their knowledge to create discouragement in the present. And that's what was happening here in Haggai's time. Internal discouragement. There's also external causes for it. Um, Israel's not really a nation now. They are a people. But a people and a nation is not the same thing. And although they're back in their land, they're not really in charge. The person who's in charge lives away in, to the east, the Persian emperor. And as you read, for example, in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, there's constant applications being made to the Persian emperor about things. And these applications are made both by the Jews and, about their, and by their opponents. Neither their opponents who surround them don't approve of what the Jews are doing, but they, they can't do anything without the permission of the emperor. And the Jews themselves can't really do anything without the permission of the emperor. And the only re reason that they are actually, humanly speaking, involved in this project of trying to rebuild a temple is because he gave them permission. And therefore, it didn't go very well, the attempts. Their opponents living around them did their best to hinder them and kind of succeeded. And of course, if you're making a kind of application to the emperor in Persia for some help, and there's no emails. There's not even a telegraph. You have to wait. And sometimes you have to wait years to get an answer. So here they are, and they are discouraged. Some of the discouragement is their own fault, and some of the discouragement is caused by others. And overall, we could say that they were just sitting there saying to themselves, what's the point? That kind of um, scenario 
not limited to the people living in Haggai's time. It can recur again and again. When things don't seem to be working the way we imagined they would, or even the way God indicated they would. And in these kind of circumstances, it's easy to become discouraged and to just ask ourselves, what's the point? And Haggai is sent by God to deal with this situation. And in this very brief letter, he mentions lots of things that are important. But I just want us to think about what he says here in verses 5 to 9. And to look at it from the question, what kind of God do we have? I mean, that's a very real question today, isn't it? In our um, advanced, um, computerized society that's trans been transformed daily by developments in technology, what kind of God do we have as we face life every day? I think these um, brief verses tell us five things. Five things about God. First one is, he's got a plan. And the second one is, he's present with them. And the third one is, he's powerful. And the fourth one is, He's going to come personally. And the fifth one is, he's going to make peace. Imagine sitting in Jerusalem with the unfinished temple. Don't know how far they had made, progress they had made, but foundations not really there. Imagine sitting there and hearing this message. What would you have said to Haggai? Would you say to him, say that again? Or would we say to him, do you still believe that? Because I think sometimes... These thoughts go through our minds, don't they? It is possible for us to regard the church as a bunker where we hide until the war is over. And that in some ways, that response brings about a certain degree of security. Except 
in a bunker, you don't really change what's happening outside. So we'll see if um, Haggai's message has anything to say to us. So God has a plan. That's described there in verses 4 and 5, where he tells the people, work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts, according uh, to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. Now, the, what seems to me to be the obvious comment to make about that announcement was, uh, they came out of Egypt centuries before this. So how could these listeners of Haggai be addressed as God having taken them out of Egypt? Some competition there. But anyway, the, um, God had made a covenant with the Israelites and he's basically telling them, I haven't moved from it. The covenant that he made when they came out of Egypt, it is still the principles or the processes, whatever you want to call it, by which he still acts. In other words, he hasn't changed. The world has changed. Huge things have happened throughout history have changed, but God hasn't changed. And as we, we ask ourselves, well, why is he referring to what happened back then? As they are sitting um, uh, around the ruins of Jerusalem. Well, perhaps he's saying to them, think of what God did. You came out of Egypt a nation of slaves. You were such an unruly group that most of you, by your own behavior, didn't get to the promised land. Even in the promised land, your history was very checkered. book of Judges tells us that they'll be good for a while and then they'll be bad for a while and this cycle just keep repeating itself. They even chose uh, a man to be their first king who was a very foolish choice. Saul. But what did God do through all that period of chaos? He remained true to his promises, to his plan. The apparent, well, they weren't apparent, but the ongoing negative features that surrounded the Israelites made no difference to God's plan. And I suspect he's saying to them, you think... <clears throat> that the current circumstances you see in all these ruins makes a difference to my plans. 
But the reality is, it makes no difference to my plan, says God. I mean, we can look at our own history. History of our country, from the church's point of view. You know, there's been really bad times in our history. When the church seemed on the edge of extinction. And no doubt, all kinds of analysis could be made about them. The time of the Covenanters, followed by the advance of the Enlightenment, followed by all the changes in the political world that we associate with the French Revolution. Society was in a turmoil. Did it affect God's plan? No, it didn't. Yeah, I suppose, no doubt, there were lots of commentators saying, the church is finished. But God just, from one point of view, is a very um, short description, but he just raised up Whitfield and Wesley and all the others who helped them, and the rest is history. And the lesson to us, I suppose, is this, as it was to the people in Israel, God doesn't change. Your circumstances change. You're no longer in Egypt. You just come out of Babylon. Everything seems pointless. But God doesn't change. God doesn't shift one inch from his plan. Doesn't matter what happens. He doesn't change. And that's still true today. God's got his plan. And it's working out fine. Amongst all the issues that people are facing, his church is making progress, it's advancing. Even as in a rather strange way, as we'll see later on, it was advancing in the days of Haggai. So we know God's got a plan. We have no idea what's in it. And therefore, there's no point trying to find out. We have no idea what God is going to do in 2024. Or in 2044. You've actually got no idea what he's going to do next month. But we know he's got a plan. And God says to these people, because I've got a plan, your responsibility is to work. And that's the same message to us. Because God has a plan. Work. Second reason. God is present. He tells us that there in verse 5. Of course, the presence of God can be described in all kinds of ways. I mean, it's one of his 
defining attributes to be omnipresent. But sometimes I think there's a danger in putting all his presence under that umbrella. Of course, God is omnipresent everywhere. We could, all, we could almost say, of course, that God is present on Mars or on galaxies that we don't yet know exist. But that is not the same kind of presence as he has here, is it? God has got a, a gracious presence. When he meets with his people, just as at times he can have an angry presence. What kind of presence did he remind Haggai to say to the Israelites? He said to them there again in verse 5, My spirit remains in your midst. God was with them by his spirit. The word remains, present tense. Even though they were dilatory, his presence was with them. And I assume God took great delight in telling them this. My presence is with you. And I suppose that's one reason why they could work. Can't judge things by the outward circumstances. If, if you go by the ruins of the city, everything it says is that God is not here. But what God says about the situation is, I am here. My spirit remains with you. And of course, the word remain indicates he's going to stay. He's not going to move away again. And that's true of us too, isn't it? Even the last words that Jesus gave to his uh, church before he, he left to go to heaven was, the Spirit is coming. And he told the disciples in the upper room that he would be with them forever. So there's, there's never going to be a time in the subsequent history when the Holy Spirit's not going to be there. And it's important for us to remember that. Because sometimes we speak as if he had gone. I mean, he, does, he is grieved at times. But that doesn't mean he goes away. The Israelites, they could look back and say, yes, there was a time when our sins took us to such a place that God had to send us into exile. But here we are, we're back in the land and the Spirit is with us. I wonder why God highlighted that. Well, I can only guess the suggestions, but I'm going to mention two. And the first one is 
When God, God is here, we could say got a new beginning. What did he do at the first beginning? Way back in Genesis chapter 1. What's the first thing that is highlighted there? Before God does anything with the shapeless mass that he has created. You see, it tells us back there in Genesis chapter 1 that the Spirit was hovering over the unshaped, whatever word you want to call it, because it hadn't yet been really created or developed. It was going to take seven days for that to happen, but prior to the seven days, the Spirit was doing something. Kind of putting life into the lifeless shape. So when God said, let there be this, then it appeared, and let there be that, and then it appeared. And these folk in Haggai's time, well, they were saying, how can anything happen here? Everything just seems dead. Now God says, my spirit is here. And remember what he did in Genesis chapter 1. Out of a completely, there's no word to actually describe what it was like before God started to shape it. So I think that's one reason. The spirit is there preparing for something. How long it takes him to prepare, that's up to him. A second um, reason he may have mentioned it was because of Ezekiel's prophecy in chapter 37, of his, which we know very well about the, can these dry bones live? Well, that describes Israel and Babylon. There they are, in, imprisoned in that apparently inescapable location. And God asked Ezekiel, can these bones live? And of course, Ezekiel, Lord, you know. And all of a sudden they came together alive. And when, when was that fulfilled? I mean, I know we apply it to all kinds of situations when there's a revival and that, but when was it actually fulfilled? It was fulfilled when they came out of Babylon. And these people here in Haggai's time, as they're the people that are described in Ezekiel 37. The Spirit has come to them. He's with them. And therefore, there's hope. If the Spirit wasn't there, there's no hope. But since the Spirit is there, there is hope. And they're not judged by what they see, but by who is with them. 
And of course, that's what the Apostle John said, isn't it? To the Christians of his time who were starting to feel the pressure from the Roman Empire. What comfort did he give to them? Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. The Spirit is with us. Therefore, there's reason for real anticipation. So God's got a plan and God is present. But God is also powerful. This may sound a bit daft, but I'm sure you've seen somebody shake a dish towel. Didn't require much effort, did it? You may have seen that same person shake a quilt. That quilt might be bigger than them, but still they had the power to shake it. But of course, if we saw the same individual trying to shake the pavement, well, we would say about that person, I think he's taking on something he can't do. But while we don't know any human that can shake the pavement, we actually know someone who can. The God of heaven. And of course, in these verses, he doesn't just say he's going to shake the pavement. He says he's going to shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. Now, of course, we might look at that and say, wow, that describes a real cosmic upheaval. But all it may be saying is that God can work anywhere. God can work in the heavens and in the earth and in the sea and on the dry land. God can work whatever he wants. Now there was a problem. One of the problems they had in trying to rebuild a temple was getting financial help. Where is it all going to come from? Who's going to pay for all the various items that they need to um, have in order just to get the city rebuilt and the, so on? How are they going to do it? Well, God says to them, it's quite remarkable, really. He says to them, I'm, in verse 6, I'm going to shake the nations, sorry, in verse 7, and do you know what's going to come as a result of that? The treasures of the nations are going to come in in order for my house to be built. They're, they're, they're saying, who's going to help us build this temple? Well, God says, I'll just give the nations a little, little shake. And as a result of that little shaking, they will give the money. And if you read the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, where does the money come from? It comes from the Persian governor. The emperor himself, out of their finances. It's a bit like, say, tomorrow. 
that God, for some reason, arranged a meeting of the G7. And they decided that their next financial policy would just be to help the church somewhere. Is it any harder for God to make the G7 do that? If you know what the G7 is, these select nations. Any harder for make them do that than to make the Persian emperor do it? God did shake the nations at that time. See, God can shake them positively, or he can shake them negatively. And there's these Persian emperor, yeah, out of his resources, he gives to the needy people in Jerusalem what they need to build the temple. And God can do anything. Because as he says himself, there in verse 9, 8, the silver is mine. And the gold is mine. It doesn't really belong to the Persian emperor. And if God wants to do that, he can do it. Our God is powerful. We're not to estimate God's power by the greatest earthly power. That's folly. Everything earthly is the equivalent of a pygmy standing beside a giant. God is almighty. Do we believe that? Do we think God is big enough to deal with the 23rd, 2023? I ask myself that question. Do we believe it? As you look around the Highlands, do you think the God of St. Columba is alive? The God of John Knox? Is he less powerful than he was? Is there something he cannot use? I mean, I assume that once the people had heard this message from Haggai, when they had their next prayer meeting, they would have said, God, please shake the nation. That's the kind of thing he does. And then fourthly, he's going to come personally. You can see that there in verse 9. He says that in this place he's going to give peace. He also says before that, that the latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former. 
Now, the people that uh, Haggai was speaking to had no idea when the period described as the latter glory would happen. I mean, they had no idea how long the temple was going to stand. So how could they know when the latter glory was? But we know. We know how long the temple lasted, this temple that they were building. And we know it lasted until AD 70. And we know what happened in the years before AD 70. That something, someone came to that temple who never came to the first temple. I mean, God dwelt in the temple of Solomon in a kind of symbolic way with a Shekinah glory. But into this second temple, several hundred years after Haggai, came the Son of God. And Rather surprisingly, he came to it as an infant. And he came to it as an adolescent. And he came to it as an adult. He came there as an infant when Mary and Joseph took him there. And we know what Simeon said, Lord, now let your servant depart in peace, for mine eyes have seen your salvation. Glory had arrived. Much greater than anything that ever happened in Solomon's temple, despite its impressive appearance. Where is the glory? Well, there he is in that little child. The whole future depends on him. And then when we see him as a 12-year-old, about to enter adolescence. There he is in the temple, discussing with the elders and asking and answering them questions. You know, because Jesus is a real man. He had to learn. He had to learn. And I suspect because he's in the temple, he's maybe talking with them about What's going to happen in the temple? And he told his mother, Don't you know? I must be about my father's business. And then we move on a couple of decades, and there he is in the temple, and he cries with a loud voice, If any man thirsts, let him come to me and drink. That took place at the Feast of Tabernacles, their, happy, their happiest festival, on the last great day of the feast, which was a day when nothing happened at the feast. On the previous days, there was great exuberance as water was taken back and from the Pool of Siloam up to the temple. But here in this last day, Jesus says, basically, the water you took up yesterday is gone. But if any man thirsts, let him come to me and drink, and he'll never thirst again. 
So his presence in the second temple was far greater than anything that ever happened in the first temple. And the Old Testament tells us lots of things that happened in the first temple, things like Solomon's prayer and so on. But what were they in comparison to the arrival of the Son of God? He had come personally. I mean, these folk in Haggai's time, well, they weren't given the date of the arrival. They had to accept it by faith. And we're given no dates either. We have to accept. And God will keep his plan. And we accept that by faith. And therefore, we work. And the last thing is that God says, in this place, that's Jerusalem, I will give peace. If it ever was a city that didn't live up to his name, it was Jerusalem, wasn't it? The city of peace. From an historical point of view, we could call it the city of no peace. Constantly under attack. But God says about it here, in this place, I'm going to make a peace that will last. And of course we know what happened. Because Jesus, the one who brought greater glory to this temple by coming there in that same city at the cross, he made peace. When he bore the penalty of sin. And of course, God is stressing this peace will be a God made peace, not a man made one. History is littered with man made pieces that got nowhere. But this peace. In this ruined city, it was ruins at the time of Haggai, in this city, I'll make peace. Peace that will last. And this message of peace, he doesn't say this here, but we know that this message of peace will be taken to the world through the gospel. And it has come to us. I hope we all are in this peace. Because it's a state of peace. We have peace with God. We're no longer at war with him. We, if we are Christians, we live in the country that can be called reconciliation. And the charges that were against us, and they were many. 
But Jesus paid the penalty on the cross. And when we believe in him, we enter into the state of peace. And it's an unchanging state. I mean, Jerusalem, the earthly city, it had its back and forth through all the arrangements it made. And nothing wrong with these arrangements, but they had to make them in order to have their temporal peace. But they were all kind of shaky. But this peace that God makes, it's permanent. Peace with God. And since we live in the country of reconciliation, we should have the peace of God in our hearts. That peace that passes all understanding. Stop in a minute, but all we have to do is ask ourselves do we, at this moment, have a conscious awareness of the peace of God? God offers it. He doesn't dangle it two inches in front of us. And every time we move towards him, he keeps pulling it back. That's not the way he does it. He gives peace. As he says, oh, that you had listened to commandments, then your peace would have been like a river. And your righteousness as the waves of the sea. Jesus said it. My peace. I give to you. It's not my peace. I offer you. It's my peace I give to you. And the fruit of the spirit. Involves peace. And here, Haggai, in order to comfort these people, says, Some stage in the future, God will give peace. We know it happened 2,000 years ago. And ever since then, peace has been flowing from heaven. So it is a pertinent question to ask. How strong is the sense of peace in our hearts? Because it should be there. Not just peace with God, but the peace of God. Shall we pray?